This week on Office Hours with Carp and Loge, we talk about the Inflation Reduction Act, which doesn't reduce inflation, but does reduce climate change. And we talk a lot about Mar-a-Lago because it is messy, messy drama, and we are here for it. Tune in. All right, welcome back, people, to Bot to season two, episode six, the season finale of our second of our second season of Office Hours with Carp and Loge. After season one, you know, we announced that, that since we went on the air, we started recording, things have only gotten worse, and we've continued that trend. I am things Peter are Lowe. better now. What are you talking about? Things are, we'll get to why they're better. We'll get to why they're better. It's funnier if they're worse. I'm Peter Loge, an associate professor at the School of Media and Public Affairs at the George Washington University and a strategic consultant. And the co-host is, as always, Dave Carp. Uh, I'm also an associate professor at GW School of Media and Public Affairs. Uh, not a strategic consultant, just a guy who really tweets probably a little too much. And these days is almost substacking too much as well. Mm. We'll come to the substack plug. That'll be like part of the cliffhanger. Hang on, kids. We've got a lot. We've got a lot going on. Thank you, Alana, as always, our producer, who already has put up with a lot of stuff that most of you are never going to hear or see because she's going to politely edit it out. Thank you to our listeners. Uh, rate us, follow us, like us, tell your friends. If you hate this, tell people you don't like and tell them to tune in. Just we're shouting to the void and need the affirmation. We have, we have a lot going on, Dave. Uh, what do you want to, want to start with the Inflation Reduction Act? The Inflation Reduction Act, which was signed into law, I believe, today, the day Tuesday, the day we're recording, it actually happened. A good thing actually happened after I'd given up hope. Generally speaking, I tell everyone not to have hope. People say, no, nah, you're being a little gloomy. And then I turn out to be right. And it sucks because nobody ever wants me to be right. This time, there was really a good reason to say, give up all hope. Joe Manchin, Joe Manchin, this thing. And then instead, Joe Manchin punked the entire Republican uh, Senate caucus. Uh, and Kirsten Cinema didn't screw it up. Well, she screwed it up a little, but she overall didn't screw it up. And so we're doing something significant on climate. We have figured out that at least one of the major tranches of what we need to do to respond to the climate crisis is just spend a ton of money. And so we are spending not a full ton, but like eh, three quarters of a ton of money to help build the infrastructure and uh, start the economic engines of new industries that are going to help us get to net zero by 2050. Genuinely exciting news. This is, this is a very big deal. You got to have hope, which is going to be a clip and a video that's going to go in the, uh, in the footnotes, peterloach.com podcast or on Medium. The name is, is, is deceptive though, right? Because apparently the Inflation Reduction Act will have very little impact on inflation. It will have a huge impact on climate, which is not mentioned in the title. I talked to one person who's been following this very closely who says we should just call it the Joe Manchin Act and give credit where it's due and be honest about what it's about. There are two sets of lessons that one is the comms of how we get into it and the comms of what we do next. You've been working on environmental issues and, and strategic communications on the environment for a long, long time. How did we get to a point where we actually won? I mean, I, I want to note while I've done this for a long time, but I also at this point haven't done it for a long time. I, I got off the Sierra Club board in 2010. So it, it, it's now been a dozen years. And I want to note that because there are people with really detailed answers who have been on the ground working on this long after I went off and became a professor instead. Credit to them. David Roberts, by the way, has a, a fantastic podcast up uh, called Volts. 
Uh, that's worth listening to for all of the details. Um, we can put that in the show notes as well. But it, it, it seems like one of the important things was a recognition that climate was never going to be bipartisan. And that meant that you needed to have the entire Democratic coalition together enough that the backbiting would be small. And then you needed to have enough solidarity to get it through. Now, how did we actually get it through when it looked like Manchin just wasn't going to go there? That's a mystery to me. I know there's a, a lot of sort of very narrow tactical stuff. From what I'm reading, it seems like the announcement a few weeks ago that Biden was considering declaring a climate emergency, uh, while I think he was generally considering it, was also a tactic to get Manchin to come back to the table. Um, you needed activists howling about this and making it a big enough issue that it seemed like a big betrayal. And then you needed the inside game of uh, Biden pressuring him, of Schumer sitting down with him. It sounds like uh, Larry Summers sat, sat down with him and said, what you were saying about inflation is actually wrong. So those inside connections mattered a lot too. Um, you needed both halves of that. You needed all of that, but this is, I mean, passing this is a tremendous enough achievement that it represents four or five years of blood, sweat, and tears from people who worked real hard. And then on top of that also had to get pretty lucky. It's hard to replicate that kind of thing. So I think you hit on a couple of things that I think are super important and good lessons for comms people. We have a lot of listeners who are who are students who can learn from this. And a lot of people, a lot of our listeners are working professionals who've, who've seen this up close. One is it takes a long time, right? Change happens super, super slowly, right? People have been talking about climate since the, at least the 70s, right? It's been a big deal. Uh, Al Gore won an Academy Award for basically a slide deck about climate. People have been making a lot very of noise. A very good slide deck, an Academy Award worthy slide deck, but basically a slide deck. But it's agenda status, right? This matters, this matters, this matters, this matters. So now it just becomes normalized that it matters. The second part is then the activists keeping pushing on the outside, right? You need the protests, you need op-eds, you need people writing on it, you need people campaigning on it, you need the noise to create political space that then allows the inside game to happen, right? So then the lobbyists or the people you've never heard of and you will never see can walk around the building saying, all that crazy noise, those people are kind of nuts, but you know, they've got a bit of a point here. And you create space for others to move into and that then creates space or demand for these other conversations between Senator Schumer, maybe the White House, maybe Senator Manchin, right? It's, and none of them on their own do it. Right, it's all of these elements and smart strategic communications campaigns. I think either create that up front, the inside-outside game. Right, you and I have both done this, where something's happening, you want you want legislators to pay attention to it, so you time events around a congressional recess, you time events in a handful of congressional districts, maybe some op-eds, maybe visiting a legislator, maybe in the tour facility. During recess, the lobbyists inside visit the Hill and visit the staffers and talk about this legislation that's happening. The member comes back to the first ledge meeting and says, hey, every time I turned around, I was getting asked about X. There was an op-ed about X. What's going on with X? And the staffer says, it's funny you should mention that. I was just talking to this person from this organization we trust. They've got a bill on X. We should get on the bill. The member then goes back and gets on the bill, right? Simplified version of it. Environmental version of it is longer, much more complicated. But I think that the important lesson here is, is all of this and the other two parts you talked about are timing and luck. Mm -hmm. Like those play just an outsized role in any campaign of work done or run. Like who happens to be in office? What else happens to be going on? What else happens to be on the agenda? And when the lucky moment strikes, you've got to be ready to take advantage of it, right? You can't wait for your moment and say, oh, hey, we should probably do something about this moment. You've got to have the, the stuff ready to go. 
I think I think these are the, some of the important lessons, even if we don't know the exactly what happened. Those are the key elements. I think I think comms people can learn from. The one thing I would add is this highlights to me the importance of serious coalition management. Right? Like it stands out to me that particularly com compared to the failed climate bill during the first Obama administration, which was, was back when I was still doing this work, this work, it is remarkable how the Congressional Progressive Caucus and the activist left were willing to be flexible. There was never a point at which they said, we are going to spike the bill. There, there were times where they were grousing because there are reasons to grouse, but they recognized the boundaries of the possible they pushed, they made noise, but they also like that flexibility is something which doesn't come naturally to like any broad coalition, particularly when it is something that is this high stakes and, and this complicated. Um, that takes years and years of internal trust building uh, and, and coalition work, which is the stuff that you do when it isn't your moment in the sun. Like along with all the activism to try to get ready for the, the moment that you can seize, you're not just sort of like pounding on the windows and trying to get attention. You are also building the trust that is required so that when it, when it comes down to it and you need to hold the line together, you can do that. I'm amazed at how they pulled that off. 10 years ago, 12 years ago, we wouldn't have been able to do it. Well, part of it is also then demonstrating to elected officials that those coalitions have got your back. They're not gonna come after you and that it's not electorally dangerous to do this, to do this. So I was up there. I you're talking about cap and trade in 2009, yeah. right on the heels of the Affordable Care Act, right? Mm -hmm. So I was, I was as a favor to a friend, I went back to work on the Affordable Care Act, mostly doing the politics of it. I was handling some other high profile stuff, including the, I think it was cap and trade. And it wasn't gonna go anywhere in the Senate. Like the bill was not gonna pass the Senate. And, and the White House and Speaker Pelosi were demanding members of the House take a hard vote on a hard piece of legislation on the heels of the, or in the middle of the Affordable Care Act debates for a piece of legislation that was going to fail. Mm -hmm. and, and the level of anger and bitterness among the, at least the people I talked to, and certainly with me and, and, and people in my office was, was, was super high. It's like, mm -hmm. you're asking us to do something that's politically hard for which there's no policy upside because it's going to fail. And this is on the heels of something that is politically and policy hard that might fail, mm -hmm. right? So I think it's creating this environment. Like if you do this, we promise you're probably going to be okay and we'll try to protect you mm -hmm. is, is super. Like, the, like members of Congress, Senate, Senate offices, House offices simply had to trust this process, right? And I think they're getting it. And the progressives are progressive caucus and progressives are taking credit as they should third way and the moderates are taking credit as they should. You know, Larry Summers is that way. Let everybody take credit because everybody had a hand in this piece of everybody had a hand in this. Mm -hmm. So the other question was now what? Like, you, like, you know, we celebrate, but it ain't over. What are yeah. the comms lessons coming out of it? What do we do next? What are the comms things to do next? I mean, for the climate movement, this is mid-August. So everybody's about to move into electoral mode. And the real answer is, okay, go work elections. Try to make the upcoming the 2022 election less bad than it might otherwise be, right? Like it is incredibly unlikely that Democrats in the climate movement are gonna look back at 2022 and say, that was a real step forward. But the question is, can it be a smaller step back? Can Democrats hold the Senate? I can't even say, can Democrats hold the House as gerrymandering? Uh, can Democrats at least keep the House very, very, very close? And then really you're waiting until after the smoke is clear, right? Like mid-November, is when you can then come together and say, 
all right, what are the next two years look for us? Because any planning that you do now is gonna be so contingent on what's the national possibility space that you're, you're not really doing anything. I'm not sure I agree with that. I'm not sure I agree with that. Because I think Republicans are already saying, we're going to roll back this stuff. We're going to impeach and attack everybody. So you you know that the Republicans, assume the Republicans are going to take the House. You can predict who the chairs are going to be or what the agenda is going to be. So you can find the pieces of the legislation you think they're going to go after first. I would find ways to protect those now. How do we like promulgate rules immediately? How do we embed things immediately? Um, how do we start doing comms to inoculate against the attacks we know were coming? The specifics of that will change, right? The number of seats in the House, the committee, the exact committee makeup who goes to jail between now and January, you know, whatever. But I think the broad contours we, we, we know, and you should be already inoculating, pre-writing, really just getting as much of this stuff embedded in law and rule as, as possible to just make it as hard as possible, both politically and as a policy matter to undo. So here's where I'd split the difference. I okay. think that's right if you're the administration, right? Like the administration has just signed, gotten something signed into law. Let's start getting it locked in so that it is hard to undo by an angry committee chair in the house. If you're the Sierra Club if, or if you're Sunrise, You've got less agency over that. You're doing more public comms to activists and to media. And so you have less of a role setting that into law. What you can do instead is like brag about the victory, like do a bit of a victory lap and talk about how this is a big deal so that in the public mind is a thing that was done. But then again, we are now moving into one of the, the fast parts instead of the slow parts where what happens in November matters an awful lot for what comes next. So the focus, I think, for them turns to November. I, I think, I mean, the focus has to be on November, but hopefully the November team has been working alongside the, the, the lobbying team. I mean, you just have to be able to do these things at the same time. And right. I do think, though- Big organizations, they are. But I, I, I really disagree, though. I think I would be planning a conference in mid-January, early January that says, Here's where we're going next on climate. Here's the next piece on, on energy, on energy independence, on sustainability, on whatever it is. And, and not just brag about, hey, we won, we won, but here are things that are good because we won. Here are the positive outcomes. You're just telling this positive story. Otherwise, the Republicans or opponents will get to walk into really a messaging vacuum in January and go, ha, crazy climate people want to ban meat again, right? And absence- say that no matter what. Right, but, but absent a counter-narrative, it's easier to say. I mean, you don't wait until you're hit to defend yourself. Sure, but again, to me, this comes down to who is positioned to, to really do that counter-narrative. If you are in one of the industries that suddenly is getting an awful lot of investment, like, yes, start building stuff up. If you're the administration, start helping to fashion stories about how we're getting good paying American jobs out of this, uh, out of the Inflation Reduction Act. Like do that work. If you're a grassroots environmental organization, you can look at state and local, you can figure out like at the state and local level, are there things that we can start storytelling on? But like, there's not gonna, like there's no messaging vacuum in partisan media, which is where they're mostly gonna be telling the story because it's just full, full of whatever it is that Tucker is saying on any, on any given night. And so I, I like I think they're they're gonna say whatever they're like whatever they were gonna say at CPAC, they're gonna say anyway. And it's it's immaterial what reality is because they haven't cared about 
reality in at least 20 years. And so, yeah, like lock in those wins where you can make it harder to, to tear this thing down. I, I do think if you're the administration, I think there's a lot of work to be done around telling that story. If you're advocacy organizations, I, I just think you're less in that that particular room, at least for the next few months. I, I think that makes sense, but you still got to, but if you maintain the coalition and you keep the coalition talking to each other and trading information and the administration says, look, what are people hearing? We're pushing out this messaging. What are you hearing? And maybe the industry groups or the environmental groups come back and say, here's what we're hearing. We need, we're hearing A, we really need more B out of you. Or, you know, industry groups go to environmentalists and activists saying, look, we feel like we've now been thrown overboard. We want to continue fighting for this, but we really need some more grassroots cover. Can you give us a bit more cover? So the coalition continues to do some of that background work just to continue to, like, you just don't go home. Right. You don't, and you don't say, hey, I just won the nomination. I'm going to take a week off before running for president. And, you know, I think I think you got to keep going. We are now moving to I, we need a good name for the Muckalago, the, the Mara, Mara train wreck, Mara. How does it not bother all these right wing crazy people that Mar-a-Lago is actually not an English word? About anyway. Mara, are you kidding me? Mara, are you kidding me? That's good. I like that. But it has to have the accent. Yeah, yowza. You know what I'm saying? So uh, messaging lessons coming into and coming out of Mar, are you kidding me? I mean, it's, not, it's better with the accent. It really is. It, so I, I don't think it starts with mess. Like it, we're, we're a comms podcast. Yeah, but it's a political podcast too. And <laughs> look, the... Dude is in trouble with the Espionage Act. And yeah, that seems bad. Like, we, we don't know exactly what the top secret stuff is, nor will we, because he didn't declassify it by thinking declassification thoughts. Right? Like, this is, uh, people are making the joke on Twitter about this is like Michael Scott from the uh, office yelling, I declare bankruptcy, but for declassification. This entire thing is ridiculous in the same way that the entire four years of his presidency was ridiculous. It's also criminal in the same way that all four years of the presidency were criminal. And we're still facing the fundamental question that we've always faced of, do you actually hold him accountable the way you would hold any other human being accountable, given the very real political calculus that his supporters will go and burn shit down? And also, if it turns to a jury trial, it's pretty hard to find a full jury that doesn't include one Trumpist who just says like, but he, he's my Lord and savior, we can never convict. So the Justice Department still has to face all of that. And they have to balance that against, you don't really have the rule of law if laws don't apply to the head of one of the two parties just because his supporters like him and are violent, right? Like the, the, this is a no-win situation, but also a no-win situation in which it seems to me kind of like how Elon Musk for years and years has thumbed his nose at the SEC and what are you going to do? It's just the SEC. And now he's thumbing his nose at contract law and in October he's going to the Delaware Chancery Court. And most likely what he's going to find out is that securities law is soft and contract law is really hard. Like I think Elon Musk is in a lot of trouble because he's about to find out that kind of can't fuck around with the Delaware Chancery Court and contract law. I think we very well might be in a situation where while the Justice Department could kind of overlook hell, even January 6th, 
they probably can't overlook you took nuclear secrets. We told you to return them. Your lawyer swore that you returned them. We have video of who was going in and out of the unsecured place where you were storing them at your club. Like it, it's very possible that that's just so far along that now we're going to see a real trial because the Espionage Act. So and from that will come the convalescence of what do you do when now actually Donald frickin' Trump, who of course at that point will announce that he's running for president, whether he planned to or not, the front runner for the Republican presidency and still the guy who runs the entire Republican party is now being investigated for doing really serious crimes. Like the comms lessons are gonna flow from that, but I don't think we can get comms lessons unless we start with all that because that's the objective reality shape and everything. So I think there are a couple of things. First is, glad you finally got the Elon Musk reference in because it took you, you 20 minutes to get there. Well, you know, I had to talk to you first about all the things you were wrong about with the IRA. <laughs> and when it's all the good news, really distracts from the Elon Musk bashing. I'm not and used to it. You're not used to it. And, and Yang is like come and gone. And that, so we can't, we can't really beat up the silliness, which is forward, whatever that was. The comms piece is like super tricky of this, I think on the front end. First of all, the Justice Department, when the warrant wasn't released, and it really was just a vacuum. You know, the internet, cable TV, podcasters, social media, abhor a vacuum, and then fill that vacuum. They're not releasing it because fill in your favorite conspiracy theory, fill in your favorite whatever, right? So everybody, absent information, people fill information, in part because you got to fill space, you got to fill time, um, but also in part because that's what people do, right? We're storytellers. We make sense of the world. This big thing happened. We're going to make sense of it. It's a conspiracy theory. Finally, they're getting it to get him. Aha, Mark Collins was playing the long game, whatever. We're in the same position now because the DOJ is not releasing another set of documents because they say it'll risk of further on, other ongoing investigations, which then is allowing people to then fill in whatever they want. And that's a tougher comm situation, right? Mm -hmm. And then whatever happens next, you're right. Somebody's going to have to explain it and we're all going to bring our own explanations to it. And it's finally going to be the rule of law is finally winning or Trump really is above the law or whatever. I don't know. That gets that gets super hard. I do think as a candidate matter and as a, as a campaign matter, I thought Matt Iglesias had an interesting couple of tweets, I want to say a week ago, suggesting that, that when Democrats talk about this and they've got to tie it to something that actually resonates with voters. The Hill called me last week about this, how is the media covering it? And I, I had a few minutes to prepare for the interview. So I went to the first, the websites, the first two local newspapers that occurred to me, the Arizona Republic has did Arizona politics for a while and the Columbus Dispatch, neither of which were talking about the warrant or the investigation. Arizona, unsurprisingly, was talking about water, mm -hmm. right? Because water matters a huge amount in Arizona, right? So it's not, it's just not connecting, right? So all of us are talking about it because it's a really big deal. This is like a fundamental threat to democracy, which is something in which you and I have invested our entire lives. Most people have a more, they want stuff to work. They want to, how much does gas cost? How do I get my kids to school? And so Iglesias, he said, I've been talking to Democratic friends or Democratic colleagues saying that we need to say, you know, the, these insiders think the rules don't apply to them. So they don't have to pay taxes or mm -hmm. they want to continue to rig the rules. So the rule of law doesn't apply to rich people. There's mm -hmm. got to be a therefore you care because it's tangible as opposed to therefore you care because in the grand arc of how humans govern themselves, you know, democracy stumbles around less and is less awful than the other forms. I have three thoughts. One is 
<laughs> focusing on local papers in 2022 sounds just feels very dated to me. They've got like three staffers left in each of those papers, right? Nevertheless, um, but, but it's a reflection of what people care about in those areas. Or, or at least a, a reflection of what is remaining in, in the niches that they cover. Yeah, or um, the or the algorithm sent to me in Washington, D.C. from Arizona. Who knows? But the point is, like, it's the best, given 15 minutes, it's the furthest I could get away from my bubble was sure, to sure. Google the Arizona Republic and the Columbus Dispatch. So the, the thing I want to push on, though, is this is messy drama. Like, Donald Trump's one superpower in his four years in office and when he was running for presidency was that sort of reality television sensibility of all of the attention will be on me at all times without any of that instinct of trying to make it like, like you know he tells a good story about how like oh the deep state is against me i am here for you people it's sort of the uh, authoritarian shtick but mostly it's just here's a bunch of messy messy drama and we are a national culture that has now had what survivor started airing what in like 99 or so oh we, we've now had 20 plus years of marinating in reality tv messy drama and it's, it's enough of the culture that even if the columbus dispatch isn't putting that on the front page the, the the drama of it is still going to attract a fair amount of attention i generally think that messaging is right about the rules should apply to everybody and this is just like how they don't want to pay their taxes what makes this a little a, a little different is it's a threat to democracy if the rules don't apply to him. Taking the nuclear secrets and showing it off in the club, that's actually only indirectly a threat to democracy. That's a threat to the nation state, right? Like, it's not that we can't have a democracy if you give away our secrets. It's the like our, our system of spies and intelligence gathering gets weakened if you hand that shit off to all those spies who like pay the club fees so that they can come to Mar-a-Lago. Like, like even if we were not a democracy, the nation state is worse off. That connection is actually a little frayed here in a way that like on January 6th, it's very clear. I think it's clear here though, because he also released the names of two FBI agents. Mm -hmm. Right. So but I think that's, that's right. It's like people's lives, he's putting the lives of law enforcement and national security officials in danger. Like that's a tie. That's a thing I can grab onto. But it's not about democracy so much as right. the nation state. Right, and, right. But like, there's messy drama here of like, seriously, dude, like you you just decided to hold on to some top secret documents at Mar-a-Lago? Like that, that's messy drama. And like, we do get serious national attention cycles to that in a way that isn't necessarily about bigger things, or at least isn't about the normal bigger things. The other thing I want to point out in terms of where this is going we're going to see some weird transparency lines because absolutely the, a beat that's going to come like in a few weeks or a month from now is Trump supporters are going to insist that you and I, we the people, ought to be able to decide how bad it was what was in these documents. And then the government is going to say, no, we're not going to read the top secret documents into the public record, the fucking top secret documents. Then they're going to say, aha, what are you hiding? Like that is basically yep. going to be a 15 minute bit played on repeat on Hannity and on Tucker Carlson. Yep. And it's obvious and it's going to be effective because people are going to say, well, what are they hiding? And the answer is top secret shit. Like it, it, it's, I don't know because it's only seven people are allowed to see it, but they do that for a reason. And so th that's going to be a thing that's awkward here because again, it's not about electoral democracy in the way that so much of his other crimes are. This is just basic 
like what weird like prima donna mafia don shit were you pulling but also once again to go back to the the musk thing you, you really probably can't break the espionage act in the way that you can break electoral democracy because the entire security structure is set up to punish people on this and that's just difficult to get around I think you're right. I think that's absolutely right, which creates a common challenge that we saw when this whole thing broke, which is absent information, people will fill in information that makes the best sense to them that reinforces their worldview. And for yeah. a whole lot and of this people- this is the one space where the information is gonna stay absent because right. like it's top secret, like, no, we're not gonna tell you that. Right. Like, the, the stuff that if they, anything that they declassify can be foia So no, him magic, waving a magic mind wand saying, no, it was declassified because I took it and I said so. Like his supporters can say that it's wrong, but also it's not like we'll then get to see it because they're not going to like investigative journalists are going to FOIA all this stuff. The government's just going to be like, haha, we get it. But like, no, really, it's it's really not declassified. That's important. We do have an overclassification problem in general in the government, but I think we can trust that this isn't that, that the reason why they went and raided him is because he took a bunch of shit that he's really not allowed to have. What he was doing with it, we're going to find out. It's going to be messy drama. So those are the comms, messy, messy comms, messy, messy comms. Stay tuned. That's the cliffhanger, the cliffhanger for season three, which starts in two weeks. But before we get to season three and the wrap up, Dave, I like we can have predictions. We're going to have a look ahead. I just there's some freaky news and things that scare me because I know you're all happy this week. And like you're the guy with a halo, things that are freaking me out. This is I don't know if it's freaking me out, but I find it entertaining. Gina Lola Brigida, who you've never apparently never heard of, 95 years old. Thinking about running for parliament in, in Italy, which is weird. Apparently, there's a problem with Trump-shaped ecstasy out there. So any of you kids taking the MDMA, first of all, don't. And then second, avoid the Trump-shaped stuff, because apparently that's that's bad. And there are five-foot bats in Singapore. So like you might feel good about the Inflation Reduction Act. I have a lot of things I'm afraid of. But I do want to have a look ahead to my How prediction. Are you have a downer amongst the two of us. I'm like, something finally good happened for the first time in years. And you're like, there's five foot bats in Singapore. It's, it's, a, it's a twist at the end of season two. It's like, it's a mm. thing at the end of, of Stranger Things. It makes you go, wait, hang on. We've got to come back. Can but I do find so, out what happened to the murder hornets, by the way. The murder, that, that's so 20, like 17 or something. That's 2020. That's 25. We never heard about the murder hornets again. I'm still waiting. I don't know. They're on a comeback tour, I think, aren't they? They're, they're, I don't know. I think they're on a comeback tour. They're playing the 930 Club. Um, here's my prediction, though. For Mar- I have a Mar-a-Lago prediction. Oh, God. I have a Mar-a-Lago prediction. <laughs> you had to see that coming. The, my Mar-a-Lago prediction, they're going to find Andy Kaufman. They're going to go through, and finally, they're going to find Andy Kaufman. You think Andy Kaufman is hanging out in Mar-a-Lago? I, I was convinced he was Trump, and he was just at the inaugural just going to rip off the mask and go, aha. It's been Andy Kaufman, but that didn't work. So clearly he's just, he's hiding in the basement. What are you looking for? What are you plugging? Uh, I'm still, I'm substacking a lot. I'm getting a little spicy on Substack. So people should please follow me there. Uh, my last post was telling Substack to stop being assholes. So I'm just waiting for them to cut off my access. Uh, I'm like, oh, this hand is feeding me a little bit. Let me bite it. So uh, I'm writing a lot on Substack, mostly about tech stuff instead of stratcom stuff. Follow me there. And I would say over the next few months, the thing I'm going to be watching for, like right now, the like the vibes are real good for Democrats in the November election. Um, John Fetterman is daily wiping the floor with uh, Dr. Oz because Dr. Oz and his comms team are hilariously bad at campaigning. Uh, and Fetterman is good. So I think we're going to keep on seeing some 
good news beats. What I expect that's going to cool off between now and November. I don't think we're going to get to ride this high for an entire three months, um, but I'm going to see how long we can ride it and how good it gets. I think that's really good insight. And it comes back to what you said about a lot about the climate stuff at the beginning, which is a lot of it is luck and a lot of it is timing. Um, I am on uh, Twitter at P-L-O-G-E, all the footnotes, um, including the other podcasts as Dave continues to plug will be on peterloach.com slash podcast and also on Medium. Thank you for tuning in to two seasons of Office Hours with Carp and Loach, for following us, for rating us, for telling your friends. Look for season three starting in two weeks. We're just keeping the same. We just decided arbitrarily we're, we're done. With well, season, season three is when the semester is actually going so we can make fun of our students on this podcast. We can't do that over the summer. <laughs> <laughs> Tune in. Yeah, which of you we don't actually like very much. Maybe you should ask someone else for a recommendation for law school. We're kidding. We love all of you. All of you the same. I put all of your Most papers. of you, except for one, and you know them. <laughs> you, you know who you are. <laughs> Thank you always, Alana. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, the pod listeners. See you in two weeks. <laughs>